Uh, tonight, open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's begin tonight uh, in verse 14. For the love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge. Because if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live to themselves, but to him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, we know no man after the flesh, yea, after the flesh we know henceforth uh, him no more, though we knew Christ in the flesh at one time. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Lord, tonight we thank you for your word. Help us to live as new creatures, Lord, enjoying the privileges and the responsibilities of being your children in these last days. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Reconciliation, to be reconciled. In World War II, there was only one major Nazi concentration camp devoted to women, and that was Ravensbrück. 135,000 women and children were interred there. 92,000 of them did not leave alive. Among those who were taken to Ravensbrück were two sisters from the Netherlands who had been involved in the underground movement of freeing the Jews from Nazi tyranny. And one of those women survived Ravensbrück. The other, her sister, did not. Some five years later in Munich, Germany, that Christian lady was speaking. And up to her came a heavy-set, balding German who she recognized immediately as one of the cruel guards who had been so difficult and inhumane to the inmates at Ravensbrück. And after she had given her message, he put his hand out and said, Fraulein, you mentioned Ravensbrück in your speech tonight. I was one of the guards who was so cruel there. But I've become a Christian. And you said tonight that God has forgiven all our sins. As he put his hand out, he said, Can you forgive me? And she says, now in front of me was the hand of the man who caused so much pain, so much heartache, and so much grief for me, my family, my friends, and my, my nation. I stood there, and I could not forgive him. My sister had died in that place. Could he erase her slow and terrible death simply by the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, his hand held out to me, but it, it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. But I had to do it. I knew that, she writes. Still, I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can, I can do that much, but you must supply the feeling. And so woodenly, Mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, she says, and raced down my arm. It sprang into our joined hands, and then as this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, it brought tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard 
and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. With her willingness came God's power to forgive her and her former captor. Reconciliation, the restoration of friendship following an estrangement. Wilmington's Bible Dictionary says that reconciliation is the bringing together through a third party of two opposing parties who formerly were enemies. Few of us will ever face, face the kind of challenging reconciliation that this woman did. I know something about a bad example of restoration and reconciliation. My mother and my grandmother didn't speak to the, each other for the last 20 years of their lives. Not one word. And I, I lived around that kind of animosity. I don't even know the issue that separated and amputated their relationship, but they both went to their graves never speaking. And it didn't prepare me for the day I drove up to my father's office and saw the yellow police tape around his desk and found out that his partner had pulled a pistol and murdered him. And I was forced to confront him one day in in court. And my Christianity was deeply challenged by the need to forgive him for, for killing my dad. Reconciliation is a very real thing. With it, we are free. Without it, we are plunged into bitterness, unforgiveness, and a vicious cycle of an endless loop tape in our mind of the offense that has been committed to us. Reconciliation was on the mind of Paul the Apostle when he, he penned these words before us tonight. For the love of Christ compels us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all have died. And the word compels in the King James is constraineth us. It means to be arrested. And that's what the love of Christ will do in your life if you give it liberty and leeway. It will arrest you in your tracks, turn you 180 degrees, and turn you from a vengeful, bitter, unforgiving person to a free, loving, and compassionate one. That needs to happen to each of us at some point in our life, or we're going to be captives. We're going to be imprisoned by the memories, by the offenses, by the assaults, by the unfairness that life inevitably brings our way. We are compelled and we are constrained by the love of Jesus Christ. And so... Henceforth, the Bible says, we know no man after the flesh. And I think it's odd that Paul inserted this thought in the middle of a grand sweeping passage about the reconciliation that God provides for mankind. But upon further review, I, I, I realize that what Paul is saying to us, that is that in the course of human events, that we can be barricaded and roadblocked from expressing the love and grace of Jesus Christ by our own carnality. And Paul came to a place in his Christian walk where he was able to say, I'm not going there anymore. I'm not going to let the conflict and the ego and the arrogance and the carnality that is resident in every human heart restrain me from bringing people to the love of Jesus Christ. Because we can become prisoners even in an advanced, mature Christian state of the desire to wreak vengeance upon our brothers and upon our sisters. You see, in view, I think, when Paul wrote this text, was the reconciliation that God wants to bring through our life, as we'll see in the, as our text unfolds tonight, between Jesus Christ and a lost and dying human race. But what happens when we put speed bumps on the entrance ramp to the narrow path? 
Because that's how you should view your life, as an entrance ramp, expediting people's route to get onto the narrow path, reconciling them to Jesus Christ. That we must have unity in the Christian church. We do ourselves a great disservice when we imagine there's more than one church. The Bible is very emphatic in saying there is one church, one faith, one baptism, one Lord. Now, we have different uniforms. We put different labels on it. We imagine we have a superior brand of Christianity somehow, but that is quite a charade. And the Bible emphasizes that our unity is crucial to how the world responds to the gospel. Jesus prayed that they all may be one as thou, Father, are in me and I in thee, that they may be one in us. Why? That the world may believe, that the world may believe that you have sent me. So our unity is a crucial element to the world understanding and accepting the gospel. Further, in John 17, 21, Jesus said that they may be one as thou, Father, are in me, And that if a man says, uh, I love God, how can he hate his brother? The Apostle John wrote later. And so we must draw together around the, the essentials of the gospel and disregard things that would tend to separate and divide us. But God's not talking about uniformity, that we all have to act the same way, like the same music. There are some tonight who would have their skin crawl by the worship we had. They, they enjoy liturgy. They, they want a different kind of worship, a different kind of structure. And the Bible gives us great latitude in how we meet and how, what kind of a community of believers we become. So there, there's, there's diversity within unity. It's not cookie cutter. And God gives us that freedom and we, we can enjoy it. But the problem is, I have, um, well, first of all, I have a problem. I don't like being criticized. You probably aren't that way. You probably enjoy being criticized. But <laughs> I've, I've never enjoyed it. And what, my, my defenses go up and the hair stands up in my neck and I immediately begin dismantling mentally the argument of the person. And I also have these internal weights and scales. And on this side are the, the things I have done. And on this side are the things done to me. Oh, one more thing. On this side are my intentions, and over here are the person's behaviors. See, I I measure what I'd like to do, what I think I've done, and what I really meant, but I measure them very carefully on everything they've ever done to me. And that plummets this weight to the bottom, and aha, they are wrong. And then I take a Polaroid of that picture, of them, their wrongness, and I keep it in my mind. And I freeze-frame them right there. They have wronged me. And if there's ever a doubt, I have that picture to pull out and say, look what they did. They did that. It's a fact I can prove it. Chapter and verse. You see? And what that does, it excludes God's work. It eliminates the possibility of change and growth and forgiveness and grace and mercy. And I've got that in my back pocket, and I'm willing to pull it out at any time because it's true. It happened. Over here with what I meant to do, you see, and, and that is, that is the, the, when Jesus comes to me and says, Chip, thou hypocrite. Get the, or the Greek would be a chipocrite. And um, <laughs> he says, get the log, get the log out of your eye before you attempt to take the speck out of somebody else's eye. And so I must discard this balance and get on the, the royal road to forgiveness quickly. The highway to God's mercy and his unmerited favor. And so 
The Bible tells us to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Bible gives us practical and real ways to accomplish this. Um, I'll tell you that we all have people who are what you would call irregular people in our life. And you may be, those places can be reversed. You can serve as somebody's sideways person. You can be what one author called a well-intentioned dragon. And that's just the way we are. Iron sharpens iron. It's inevitable with all of our unique personalities and backgrounds and and, and whatnot. And so the Bible gives us a very good outline on how to overcome these personal obstacles. Because when we don't, uh, James says, where there is envy and self-seeking, confusion and every evil thing is there. So when we allow the flesh that Paul's talking about in verse 16 to rule us, uh, we're headed for a dead end. So he says, I will not, Paul says, I will not engage people any longer at this level. It's not going anywhere. There's no profit. There's no possibility of godly gain. And um, now, for the unconverted, that's inevitable because they have nowhere else to go. They can't possibly understand spiritual things. They don't have the capacity. So outside the church, we must expect people to act in a carnal fashion. Uh, so that is inevitable. They, they are, we're talking a different language. We're breathing different air than people in the world are breathing. We see a whole different worldview. Because the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, but they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So the world is one thing, referring to the unconverted. But the issue is that in the church, although we are new creatures, as we see in verse 17, therefore if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, old things are passed away, behold... All things are become new. That's the option you have to dwell in the new man with new priorities, new capacities, new powers, a new destiny, a new heart. But the fact of the matter is we don't always choose to reside in that address. Now, do we? So there is that conflict, that world in collision inside of us. Which person are we going to be? And so when that that happens, we have to have the insight of Paul not to lower ourselves to that kind of carnal conflict. That's what the conclusion Paul came to, that when he recognized the fruits of the Spirit versus the fruits of the flesh, he said, you know what? I'm simply not going to be involved in that conflict because it can't be resolved. The flesh is never satisfied. The flesh is never pleasing to God. The flesh is always going to enjoy the ongoing conflict. Now, some of you kids, I feel sorry for, you think that Star Trek, uh, the next generation, is the real thing. That is just not true. (laughs) James Kirk is the one and the only uh, commander of the Enterprise, and evermore it shall be. (laughs) Now, there was a Star Trek episode, and there were only about 76 of them total. But there were these, these aliens... These aliens that would hover around the Enterprise, the deck of the Starship Enterprise, and they would try to cause conflict, and they would be empowered by the negative emotions. And when there was an argument or strife or envy or arrogance or, or pride, they would become stronger. 
But when there was forgiveness and there was uh, cooperation among the crew, they would become weaker. Well, that's a, a terrific illustration of what happens in our life. The flesh loves the combat. It just wants the controversy. It just wants to have the, the emotion and the anger and the revenge and the, that cycle of, of human um, emotions that are counterproductive. And it will continually inflict wounds upon you and just go on with it. It doesn't want resolution. But the Spirit brings peace, long-suffering, patience, gentleness, meekness. These are the things Paul is saying we must dwell in if we're going to fulfill the great calling, the great gift we have been given as we're going to see. Verse 18, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. And here it is. Here's the gift. Look at it in verse 18. And has given us the ministry of reconciliation. If you're going to walk in that gift, if you're going to fully explore the boundaries of what it means to be a minister of reconciliation, you're not going to be able to engage in carnal measures with your brothers and sisters. It's only going to impede your progress. Paul says, I'm not going to know anybody after the flesh. Look, at even at one point he says, I knew Jesus that way before I was converted. I knew him as a, as a heretic, but I only know him now after the Spirit. And, and so I will know every man. Because the carnal measures are temporary. They're built around bone structure. They're, they're built around gene pools. They're, they're built around uh, bank accounts. And people will treat people differently if they look good, if they have things, and if they are accomplished. Paul said, I'm not going there. That's a trap. That's a trick. That's not real. I'll ask you a question. Who do you think the wealthiest person in Albuquerque is. While you're thinking about that, did you hear last week that Warren Buffett, no relation to Jimmy, uh, gave away <laughs> gave away like billions and billions of dollars? Now, I haven't read the story too deeply, but I, I haven't quite figured out who he gave it, why he gave it to, to Bill Gates. I mean, one of the few guys who might not need the billions of... I'm sure there's a good reason somewhere, but... Nonetheless, he's a very wealthy man, according to Fortune and Forbes magazine. But who do you think the wealthiest person in Albuquerque is? Oh, it's not the person you'd read about in the, in, the, in the journal or in the Albuquerque magazines. The wealthiest person in Albuquerque might be right here tonight. He certainly, or she certainly is, in the, is in a church in Albuquerque. Because it's a person who is winning souls. It's a person who's in, in investing in eternity. It's not the person with a lot of land and, and, and a lot of stuff and a lot of zeros. It's a person who's wise. And the book of Daniel says that person, let me read it to you real quickly, that person who they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. That's the person who's wealthy unto God. Well, we need to adopt those priorities, those criteria, buy into God's economy. Otherwise, if we're still carnal, where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? What came out last weekend? Superman? 
We are super men and women spiritually. We are supernatural men and women able to overcome offenses, able to forgive in the face of unfairness, able to walk in love when people have hurt us deeply. That's super. No one in the world can do that consistently and mean it, except a Christian, because we have the avenue, the means, and the mechanism to accomplish that kind of forgiveness. You see, um, we expect earthly institutions to have conflict. Once in a while, you'll see on TV a, a small country, they'll have a legislature meeting, and they'll be throwing chairs at each other. And I saw one time the prime minister was speaking, and he got body slammed by the guy next to him. And these, these things happen in worldly conflicts over power. But the Bible says it ought not be so among you. The greater should serve the lesser and not lord our authority over anybody. It ought not be so among us. So we can anticipate the world having that kind of conflict. But God expects so much more from his children. Ephesians 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling wherewith you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with longsuffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring, listen, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace the bond of peace. What's the missing element in so many of our human transactions? Humility. Humility. The Bible says that where there is strife, there is pride. There is pride. When I reject criticism, it's because I'm too proud. I'm arrogant. I don't want to be criticized. I don't want to think I could have been wrong. That's my pride. And you know, God is always pleased by humility He's always insulted by pride. Jesus, a humble servant, had every reason to be driven by ego, and yet he laid his life down for us. We use uh, shallow excuses why we can't forgive people, why we can't humble ourselves. Well, I can forgive, but I can't forget. I, I, can, I can forgive you, but I, I don't want to be around you. Oh, I'm not going to that person. They won't receive it. I've tried before. I've gone to them. They, did, they didn't accept it. Shallow. What if God forgave us that way? Well, I forgive you, Chip, but I never want to see you again. It would be lovely in heaven, wouldn't it? Well, I, I've, I've convicted him before. He's never repented yet. God is long-suffering towards us. Slow to anger. Patient. Merciful. We have to get rid of these cheap excuses and deep, deeply and fully forgive people. And then you say, well, they're 90% wrong and I'm only 10% wrong, so my balance is much higher. Get rid of that. We must go to them. The Bible says if there's an offense, you go to them. And it's not this kind of thing of this cheap, well, if I've ever possibly on a bad day maybe you know, a little bit hurt you, could you forgive me? No. It's humbling yourself before them, being transparent before them, asking for forgiveness. Romans 12:18 is so important in this whole context. If it is possible, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That is crucial. Say, well, they don't listen. 
it doesn't matter. As much as it depends on you, they won't repent. It doesn't matter. As much as it depends on you, it's your responsibility. See, God doesn't expect full success. He doesn't judge you based on how the transaction ends up. He's looking for obedience. He's looking for you to obey him and go to that person and in humility and sincerity ask for forgiveness. Our friends at Peacemakers give this quick outline of the four G's of forgiveness. Glorify God, first of all. God is always glorified by humility, sincere humility. And then get the log out of your own eye. Gently restore such a one, remembering your former estate. And don't go with condemnation. You know, we think sometimes we've been given the ministry of criticism, the ministry of condemnation. Is that what verse 18 says? No. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In the book, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry Church, the author talks about how we alienate our mission field by being against so many people groups, so many different kinds of behavior, so many political persuasions, that we've basically cut off the opportunity for repentance and the avenue for communication with those who need it the most. And so we need to then go and be reconciled and not wait for them to come to us. Well, I'm the one who got hurt. Go to them. You see, again, in the intention behavior model, we often say, well, my heart really didn't mean to do that, and, but I, I see what they did to me. And the fact is, you don't know the whole story. You don't even know your own heart. The Bible says that. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? So how can you judge your own intentions, much less somebody else's intentions? Leave that to God and be humble. Err always on the side of humility. You can't go wrong. So glorify God, get the log out, gently restore, go and be reconciled, and do it quickly. Well, this is a radical kind of worldview for our life. It'll make you into a, a new creature. It'll give you a whole new view of your relationships. I deal with a good number of national radio ministries. And in doing some research with their customer service departments, I try to find out what, gets, what topics get the most response. And I don't even ask anymore because I thought maybe it would be prophecy in one part of the country or it would be uh, financial things in larger cities. No. Without fail, from Albuquerque to Fort Lauderdale, San Diego, it's relationships. Always relationships. Number one seller, without doubt, in all these ministries. Why? We are a people of fractured relationships. We have broken friendships. We have amputated our loved ones. We have people we don't speak to anymore because they've done something to us. They've hurt us deeply. And we have a long list of reasons why that's so. You know, the Bible has never accepted the concept of irreconcilable differences. It doesn't exist. That's a man-made term. Because God took the most irreconcilable problem of all time, our human sin, and fixed it. And if he can solve that problem, he can solve your relationship with your in-laws or your outlaws or whatever the case might be. God is there for you. And we're, we're all going, whoa, not that person, please. Not that person. Yes, that person, whoever it is, 
God speaking to your heart tonight. He wants to do a work. You say, oh, no, it can't can't work. It can work. It will work. If it doesn't work, it's not your responsibility. Why? As much as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. Be in a peaceful state of existence. Well, let's go on further into verse 19. So that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses. Here's our model. Not keeping score as we keep score. Not imputing their trespasses unto them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's the word of the gospel. God has given us that word that we as ambassadors for Christ, as though Christ did beseech you by us, we pray you in his name, be ye reconciled to God. And so there it is, an ambassador for Christ. And what is an ambassador? Well, they are chosen people, and Christ has chosen us to be his representatives. Uh, We don't represent ourselves. We are here on behalf of another kingdom, and that's your responsibility, to be an ambassador. Um, Ambassadors are protected. Do you know that the embassy where ambassadors work is considered to be native soil? Within the gates and the boundaries of the consulate, the embassy, whatever country it may be in, that is considered to be part of America if you go to the U.S. embassy in whatever country it is in. And the same is true, make this parallel, for the church. Wherever his ambassadors meet, this should be an oasis of heaven. This should be a small taste of heaven because we are God's embassy, God's ambassador. You see it right there. Representing and reconciling the world, negotiating a peace treaty by the virtue of the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, Harry Truman in 1947 was wrestling with the problem of recognizing Israel. And one of his State Department spokesmen got ahead of it. He was very anti-Semitic. And he went to the United Nations and misrepresented Harry Truman to the world about his intentions in terms of the partition of Israel. And the next week, that man had a new job as ambassador in Mongolia because he misrepresented the president. And so we need to be real careful not to misrepresent heaven. Moses had that problem in saying to the children of Israel, God is angry, when God was not angry. We are not ministers of condemnation. We are ministers of reconciliation. Through us, God is beseeching the world, come to me. Here is a solution to your problems. Here is how you're going to find salvation. So ambassadors are protected because they're part of a a foreign embassy in a a foreign land, and we should be offering a sanctuary of peace and, and grace and love. And then an ambassador must be a citizen of that country. You must be converted to serve as an ambassador. And finally, ambassadors are called home before war is declared. Ambassadors are called home before war is declared. God has not yet declared war on this world. We are still in the age of grace. We are ambassadors offering his friendship. But the clock is ticking. And we will be called home prior to the declaration of war, I fully believe. And the wrath of God will come. It is coming. It is impending. But in the meantime, we must be about the Father's business, offering 
pleading, imploring, begging people to come into the grace of God, come out from underneath the wrath of God's, God's terrible anger that's going to be unleashed someday in the future. So the message of the church today is reconciliation, bringing people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But to do that, we must, we, we must be willing, we must be willing to relinquish carnal attitudes and relationships that are impeding your service as the ambassador of the king. And that's a struggle for all of us. But I, I have good news for you. I have the place for you to go to accomplish whatever kind of reconciliation you need at whatever level of relationship you have a problem tonight. I have a place for you to go where it will be much easier to accomplish those difficult words as you swallow, as your heartbeat races to think about that person and you realize a lump in your throat is really your pride and you must get rid of it. I have a place for you to go. The place is the foot of the cross. Because I say unto you, if you stand at the foot of the cross and look up at the work Jesus did there, consider his beaten body, look at his bloodied face, see the nails through his hands and feet, and recognize he did that to pay for your sins, how you have offended God, how he reconciled you to the Father. I submit to you it would be much more difficult for you to hold a grudge, for you to pull up that Polaroid picture and show everybody what was done to you. At the foot of the cross, it's very level playing field because we're all guilty as sinners. At the foot of the cross, forgiveness is dispensed freely. And you have the opportunity to share that grace with people who have hurt you and with those that you also have offended. We, we talk very much about how much God loves us, how his thoughts towards us are like the sands of the sea, how he never forgets anything you've given freely and anonymously to his work. You've only lent it to him. He'll repay with interest someday. We talk about how he's never given a cup of cold water in his name that he won't repay you. Those are important numbers. But there's another number I'm afraid that God knows. And that's every sin I've committed against him. I think he knows everyone. Everyone. And I can't do anything to subtract from that past number. His blood washed it all away. But what I can try to do is reduce the new ones, the future insults and offenses. And it's an open insult to God to walk in pride. And so my responsibility is to find myself frequently and, and fully at the foot of the cross. Because anywhere else, out of the shadow of that cross, I can begin deceiving myself. I can begin talking myself into different postures. But at the foot of the cross, it's open and naked before him. And that's where you need to live your relationships. That's where you need to begin getting them right tonight.
That's where you should place your phone calls from. That's where you should write your letters in the coming days, at the foot of the cross. Let them be blood-stained. Let them be tear-stained. Let them be done in full open view of what God did through Jesus Christ for you and I. Because when you do that, you'll, you'll find them ventilated by the mercy and the grace of our Savior. I want to get to verse 21 because it's such a, a majestic passage. And I want you to soak it in. For he hath made him to be sin for us. Imagine that. He has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Hmm. That's the great contrast, people. If you're willing to kneel at the foot of the cross, he will allow you to stand in his righteousness. It's the only way you'll have right standing before God. Don't fool yourself. Your righteousness is not based on anything you've done. We often begin to keep track of how good of Christians we are, how much we give how much we serve. I say unto you, it's meaningless. It's filthy rags before him. It's just a token of his great love to us that we are trying to return to him. And so tonight, I believe many of us have business to do with the Lord. And I'm going to give you some time here in a moment to contemplate that. We don't like being silent. I don't. We don't like meditating because we might just hear things we don't want to hear hear names we don't want to be reminded of. But I believe God wants to speak to our hearts. But first, I want to be be careful to implore anyone here tonight or listening by any means that if you've never accepted the great gift of, of God's sacrifice through Jesus Christ, that tonight would be your night. It doesn't concern me if anybody responds. It's my responsibility to make that offer. It's your responsibility to answer in the quietness of your own heart and then to make a public confession if you're so moved. And I can only tell you what God has done for me, how he has so graciously saved me and so been so patient with me over the years because I know what a jerk I can be. And I'm not even fully aware of how much of a jerk I can be. I, I just get a glimmer of it now and then. And he knows. But yet, but yet, his, his promises are so wonderful and, and, and magnificent for each of us. But it's time to move on in grace and peace and mercy in all of our lives. So if you're holding on to any kind of bitterness or dwelling in the prison of unforgiveness, you can be sprung loose tonight. And here's the key. Forgive me, Jesus. Forgive me.